Welcome to Can I Get a Retake, where we explore the accomplishments of our innovative community. Each month, we speak with one of Great River Learning's higher ed instructors and authors. Together, we discuss trends in education, areas of study, and a variety of teaching styles and philosophies. My name is Michaela, your marketing coordinator. My name is Michelle, your web design supervisor. And this is Great River Learning's Can Can I I Get get a a Retake? So a little history. In 2022, Michaela and I connected over a shared vision to create a podcast highlighting our diverse authors. After months of careful planning and coordination, we launched the first season of our show, a nine-episode collection interviewing our authors about their lives, their research, and their experience writing with Great River Learning. Our first season, that was a season of discovery. We explored history in Colorado, health and fitness in Tennessee, political trade policies in Oregon. With each episode, we expanded our understanding of the world while forming connections with students and authors and universities across the United States. In this episode, we reflect on the podcast's inaugural year, the lessons we learned, the challenges, and celebrating our general excitement to be here speaking to you now. We also look ahead and will continue shaping the show to serve our curious listeners. So to help us transition seasons, we are going to bring on a GRL favorite, our friend and our colleague, Tim Shane. If you have authored with GRL, then you know who you've probably met Tim Shane. He is a veteran of the publishing industry and has spent over 15 years getting to know our authors, their visions, um, and their their publications. So he was first in sales and acquisitions, and he now runs project development, leveraging his skills and publisher knowledge to guide writers through the process of writing and developing a digital publication. We will let him explain what exactly that means, what he's learned, and how he uses his skills and understanding of the publishing history to guide new and active authors alike through this development process. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Tim and stick around to hear our ambitious plans for an even stronger second season. It's going to be a fun ride. Thank you for joining us, Tim. We appreciate you taking the time out of your day to chat with us and our audience about what it's like to be a project development coordinator at Great River Learning. Happy to be here. Well, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at Great River Learning? Uh, Yeah. So my role starts when uh, an author has already met with one of our acquisitions representatives. Um, They've already gone through some of the contractual uh, stages. So they they have a meeting, uh, they want to create some educational material, and they've taken those first few steps. I get involved, um, all of the PDCs get involved when we start conceptualizing what that new publication would look like. Uh, And we start with, well, what do we want to accomplish? What are we trying to create? Why are we trying to create it? What do we hope to achieve with it? And how would we measure if we're successful or not? 
And so that's where I get involved. Uh, from there, it's uh, basic project management. Um, how do we go from some content or no content? So in some cases, authors have curated material over the years or created material over the years. Um, how, do we, how do we use some of that, any of it, if, if possible? How do we take that and incorporate it into a publication that that author would want to use as an instructor and that it would want their students to use as students? So it's a matter of uh, plotting out a course and helping come up with a structure for how all that content fits together. Uh, like I said, plotting out that course and then uh, helping them stick to that and then inevitably dealing with the randomness that comes up in the middle of a, of a development process and navigating your way around those hurdles or impediments um, all the way up through making sure that uh, the bookstore has enough copies on hand and making sure that students are able to get in and use the, the publications as intended. And then from there, after launch, it's the, the support of how is it working? Are there any things that you're noticing as you're in, you know, using as an instructor? Or the, is there anything you're noticing that needs to be refined or polished, or adjusted, um, and fine-tuning it from that point? And you really originated this role in Great River Learning. Um, how, how has it evolved since you first started as an acquisitions manager? So it's, it's evolved in the sense that um, I, th I feel like it's a lot more prescriptive and formal now. Not formal as in, you know, tails and top hat. But uh, we, we definitely have a, a very prescriptive process now. Uh, initially it was, um, you know, an author was, was brought in would sit and meet with them for, uh, you know, sometimes two, maybe maybe four hours, as long as four hours, and we would we would really try to answer every single question that might come up over, you know, a nine month, uh, you know, development timeline, and um, what we've gone to now is breaking that down into smaller chunks and distributing the information as needed so that it's not A, overwhelming, uh, or, or B, uh, lost in the chaff. You know, let's, let's have you as an, you know, from the, from the PDC standpoint, author, I want you to do X now, and we can worry about, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all those stages later on. But I need this now so that we can get started. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot more, um, I feel as though it's a lot more streamlined. Um, I think it's a, a lot easier for our authors to wrap their heads around. Uh, and I think it's uh, maybe a more guided, handheld uh, process. So instead of, here's the map, enjoy your trip to Europe, it's, okay, let's talk about getting on the plane. Uh, let's talk about baggage claim. Let's talk about getting on the train. Let's talk about getting off the train and making sure you're not accosted in Paris and getting to your hotel. So it's it's a little bit more guided. It's a lot more guided. 
Yeah, it's that sustained support yeah. throughout the entire process yeah. that's come with, you know, that's grown with Great River Learning as we've yeah. refined our process. Absolutely. Does it help to have, for the author to have a lot of stuff already created or does it not really matter? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, and there isn't a yes, no to that. It's an, it depends. Um, in some cases, yeah, it's great if an author has an idea of, or not only has an idea of what they want to use, but they've been using it for, for years. Mm -hmm. Um, in other cases, it becomes the biggest hindrance ever because it anchors them to what they've been doing for years. And in most cases, uh, what we run into is authors who want to substantially shift the way they're delivering the course information. Um, and that means moving away from books that they've used for 15 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're using the 10th edition now, but they learned as an undergraduate using the 3rd or 4th edition. And so this is a shift for them. And in a similar fashion, they may have a lot of content that they've curated over the years and they've been using, but they're, as they work with us, they, they, they start to realize this is actually holding me back. Mm -hmm. um, some of this I can use and some of it I can't. Uh, and it's as, as simple as just looking at their outlines and how their outline changes from conversation one to conversation three or four, and even how that outline evolves by the time they're, you know, they're writing chapter five or six. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll, they'll come back and say, hey, I've really got to change you know, the second half of my, my book mm -hmm. because of X. Um, I, I really decided I want to I tried this in class and I've decided I really want to take this approach. Yeah. So sometimes having a lot of content as you start mm -hmm. becomes a hindrance and you don't, you don't recognize it until you're yeah. into the process. One of the things, one of the changes I've seen over the years is um, authors are now more tuned into how they deliver the course than they were, you know, a decade ago and we'll actually have some authors you know as they're talking with us they'll they'll intentionally stop the process and say hey we've got to got to pause really quick I need to go talk with my chair my dean mm -hmm. I've got to talk with my colleagues because I'm thinking that we we need to redesign the course yeah. we need mm -hmm. to adjust and shift what our objectives are because this course has an impact on four other courses yeah. And as a department, we've been talking about this, you know, shifting some of this. And I'm the first one to start picking at the Band-Aid. Sure. And so if I make this change, it's going to affect, you know, those other courses. I need to make sure they're, they're aware and that they're, they're, they're supportive of this. As we gain an audience of authors or potential authors or new authors, do you have any particular guidance for someone starting off at that early stage when it comes to creating an outline? What do you keep? What don't you keep? What is GRL's role in helping you through this? And so our role is to help authors uh, be critical thinkers. So it's to a degree it's role reversal in the sense that most instructors are there to help their students become critical thinkers and so we help authors become 
critical thinkers and ask, and it all starts, I mentioned earlier, it all starts with, what are you trying to accomplish? Uh, is this an introductory course that um, is used as a foundation for all of your majors? And if so, what sort of matriculation concerns do we have? As these students move from, you know, biology 101 to biology 102, and then, you know, 205 and 230 or whatever they are, um, what impact are we having? Um, and if, if we pull some of that content in earlier, because these are majors, so maybe we bifurcate the, the classes and it's a 201 for majors and a 200 for non-majors. Mm -hmm. um, not that we're in the, in the business of course design, but if these conversations are happening on the, in the department, on the campus, um, you know, what do we want to accomplish with this publication? So it gets back to um, how do we achieve that? Uh, and are we trying to mimic what other courses have been over the years? Are we trying to mimic what other publications, what other textbooks have been over the years? Or are we trying to accomplish something different? So what do we want to accomplish? What learning outcomes are there? How can we measure those learning outcomes? And how can we guide the student toward those outcomes through both content and activities or assignments, some sort of engagement so it isn't this passive, you know, you know, words on a page. It's not a passive experience. It's more of an engaged, active experience so that we're, you know, feeding into, you know, you know, just the natural tendency for students to learn when they're engaged. How do we, how do we tap into that? Um, so, how do I look at, how do I help an author look at their outline? What are your, what are your objectives? What are your, what's the end? Because once we know what the end is, then we can figure out what kinds of, um, what, not only what route to take, but what provisions we need as we're moving through this journey, um, whether it's you know text, whether it's video, whether it's audio files, whether it's websites or articles, whatever it is, here are all the resources we can bring to bear on it. Now, how do we structure that so that it becomes a consistent experience, either chapter by chapter, lesson by lesson, day by day, week by week, whatever it is. I do love the journey metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> How do you help the author stay on track Oof. as you're going through this process? Um, so the first way you help them stay on track is by early on just setting up a, a, an editorial calendar or submission schedule. And then you look at that schedule with them uh, and ask, when are your birthdays? When are your anniversaries? When does the semester end or begin? And then you, again, you navigate around those anchors in their schedule. You find out if they're taking a sabbatical or if they've got conferences that they go to or mm -hmm. some sort of research that they're conducting where they're gonna be, like we had one person who would routinely go out in the field, literally out in the field and dig. So, um, you know, those sorts of things you, you take into account. So the first, the first way to keep them on track is to make sure that we have a realistic, collectively, we have a realistic expectation for when content can be developed. Mm 
You give them their own syllabus. I do. <laughs> From there, it's a matter of making sure that the scope matches that mm-hmm. that timeline. Uh, you know, trying to write a you know seven hundred page uh, manuscript takes more time and requires more energy and effort than a three hundred page mm-hmm. manuscript. So part of it is is really asking, what content are you going to be bringing in and presenting to students, and um, can any of this content reduce the amount of writing that you're going to yeah. be doing? So uh, whether it's it's solving equations on a whiteboard and videotaping it, or having a short, you know five or ten minute video where you're explaining some concepts instead of trying to explain them over five pages of a manuscript. Those are all, you know, tactics to help control the scope of the project. From there, so you've got, you know, basic timeline, you've got basic scope. From there it's habit. Mm -hmm. So, and again, this gets back to one of Michelle's first questions, you know, how's it changed? Mm-hmm. We're more prescriptive now. Um, what we found over the first, I don't know, five or six years uh, is that um, authors were typically able to generate a first draft in a two or three week period. And so we just started setting this arbitrary date, two weeks. Let's see how much content you can create in two weeks. And then, once we gave them feedback on that draft, we would give them another two weeks to polish it, refine it, and get started on the next chapter. Uh, and so that's become a very prescriptive approach, and it, it works. Does, does every chapter take two weeks? No, that's not, that's not realistic. Um, but it does start the habit. It's like any kind of habit. Um, you know, the, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Well, if I can help you through the first two, three, four, five steps and make sure that they're, they're the same, you know, two and a half, three feet uh, per stride, then I'm helping you start this, this journey, this, um, this, this long walk, if you will. Um, and then it's a matter of, uh, routine pre-scheduled meetings so you know again keeping them on track monitoring their progress and at each point not only asking them where they're at but also seeing where they're going is there anything in the next two weeks that's come up when we set your schedule back in august we didn't know that your chair was going to retire Mm -hmm. and now you're in the process of interviewing new you know, professor candidates so that you can, you know, backfill that individual's position so that somebody else can become the new chair. Um, or maybe they've been voluntold that they're the chair mm-hmm. and, um, you know, they have more administrative duties. That wasn't something that we had originally c- accounted for. And so we've got to account for that. Mm-hmm. And it, again, it's really a matter of what is out in the path in front of you and how do we how do we navigate around it? Sure. So I feel like that's another great way to highlight the difference between Great River Learning and self-publishing. Mm-hmm. And there's many different outlets to publish your work independently. 
but Great River Learning has that very close guidance that's mm-hmm. going to get you to the finish line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we really view um, ourselves as a partner. Um, you know, uh, sometimes that slips into coach or taskmaster, but we're doing this because we want to help you achieve your goal. Um, obviously, we've got an interest in developing publications and then selling them to students. Um, but we also want to help you succeed. We want to make a difference. Um, if we wanted just to publish to publish, we'd all be, you know, working for... It's really a matter of can we can we partner with them and help them along the way. Yeah, it is a, working with somebody as opposed to, you know, just doing this on your own. If anybody feels as though they're doing it on, a, on their own, we're doing something wrong. Right. Because it's the copy editing, it's the permissions, it's the design, it's the web design. There's so many different yeah. independent aspects to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we did mention self-publishing, but I'm curious what separates GRL from our competitors in this sphere? Um, I think the biggest piece would be the partnership. Uh, we, we really want to help guide folks through it. We want to help them achieve their objectives. We don't come at the, we don't approach the project with a, uh, an attitude or a, a mentality of you've got to include this. You've got to cover, I mean, just going back to the, the outline. Um, if I were working with a, a traditional publisher, uh, I would probably look at the you know, four or five other titles that I had in that space, look at their table of contents and say, these are the things we've got to cover. Here's your starting outline, figure out how you're going to make this unique. How are you going to customize this outline? Knowing that you've got to cover these, you know, 17, 18 topics. So uh, I think the, the first real thing is, you know, we view this as a partnership they're given the autonomy to decide what topics they want to cover uh, and how they want to cover them. Um, we will always be providing guidance and in some cases we develop a publication that goes against our better judgment in terms of the type of activity or the type of assignment that's in there. Um, you know, We will strongly suggest that certain things are included but we don't mandate it. And I, So I think again that separates us from other publishers. Um, Anecdotally, I've also heard from authors that it is the frequency with which we meet with our authors, uh, with a handful of exceptions. Um, we meet with our authors every other week uh, throughout the development process to make sure that we're checking in on them, we're giving them the assistance and the help that they need, we're providing a guidance that they're requesting. Um, and really, we do it um, so that we're understanding what's happening with them or to them as they're working through the development process. They may say something that seems innocuous to them, but we recognize it for what it could be or what it might be. Uh, oh yeah, my, my chair is departing. Okay, that means there's going to be a shift in the, in maybe the structure of the department. Uh, that might mean that somebody else is going to be taking the lead and becoming the coordinator for this course. Um, you know, what, what kind of impact does that have for us? And um, 
so really it's it's developing the partnership having conversations understanding what's happening and what impact it might have on the publication we're developing because ultimately I don't want an author spending any more time developing something if it's not going to lead to mm-hmm. you know the fruitful result that we want that we both want um, so I think that's those are two of the biggest things that separate us from from other other publishers is we we don't mandate we don't dictate what you're covering we have no preconceived notion of what a biology 101 or a introduction to speeds or a principles of microeconomics mm-hmm. publication includes we're really relying on them to to make those decisions and then it's the fact that we view it as a partnership and we're going to meet with you frequently we're going to meet with you regularly and make sure that we're helping where we can when we can what advice do you have for first-time authors or maybe instructors who don't think that they're ready to publish but they're thinking, you know, well, they're listening to this, so they're thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> they're thinking about it. Um, they're curious. Uh, I would say get started. Just get started. And that, so, again, what changes have we made over the years? Um, one of the big shifts that we've made recently is we, we want authors to start writing right away. So after the first meeting, uh, you know, so the last, you know, 10, 15 minutes of, of the first you know, planning meeting uh, that we have. We show authors our best practices manual, our kind of author manual, and talk them through how to start drafting a chapter. And the purpose of that, the reason for that is we want to see what it is they're imagining their chapter would include, because from there we can start figuring out what sort of content might we bring, what sort of interactivity might we bring, what sort of assignments or activities would help uh, achieve those learning outcomes that the author sets forth in the first paragraph or two. Mm -hmm. Um, How can we, what what can we do to augment that and make it a better experience for the student, make it a better educational tool for the the instructors uh, and a better resource for those students. Uh, And so the, the advice I would give is just get started. Um, nobody is ever going to top the worst chapter I've ever received. <laughs> nobody. So just get started, and from there we can always make refinements and adjustments, and we can talk through you know, what, what happened as you were writing, what you discovered about yourself as an author as you were writing. So the, again, the advice would be get started. And I find that the, the best authors, the best instructors are the ones who are constantly asking me, does this make sense to you? Do you, you know, if you were my student, would, would you understand this concept? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are, that, that's something else I've learned. No matter how, how learned you become, um, or as you become more adept at something, you know, more knowledgeable about something you're worried uh, or concerned um, that you might not be able to explain it to others, which is a huge deal if you're writing a publication, right? You're creating educational material. You, you want to make sure that it's understandable. Right. Yeah. But that's also one of the comments on a lot of our student surveys <laughs> yeah. is, you know, because it's not, it, it's not like a normal book. 
if you're not reading a lot of dry information, you're reading something that your own professor wrote, and it's not written in a more technical lens. It's written, a lot of them, how we speak, so it's so much more digestible. Yeah, yeah. Digestible is, I think, the appropriate word. We want to make sure that it's it's written at the appropriate level, mm-hmm. and so that's one of the things we look at as, as we get that first draft in. Um, so that that's one of the things we look at as we get that draft back, and then as we get subsequent chapters, is the writing style very similar? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, back to the, the adjustments in the process, one of the adjustments we made, I'm guessing four or five years ago, was shifting the submission schedule forward so that we gave ourselves a good buffer at the end so that authors really had an opportunity to read all of the chapters beginning to end and make sure that it was consistently written. It was the same tone. It was the same voice because they're writing these chapters over the course of nine months, 12 months, 18 months. And the way you write changes the more you write. So chapter 15 isn't going to read exactly the same as chapter one. And so there's going to need to be some smoothing um, when we get to the end. Sure. So that's one of the other changes. No, and I mean, that goes back to something you said about looking at the end results. And often that end result we're looking towards is student success. Mm-hmm. And that might mean different things to different titles. It might mm-hmm. mean we want these students to become majors or we want these students to gain valuable life lessons. Mm-hmm. I think back to Lee Murphy's title where it's teaching them healthy habits to live with for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. Or it could be just making them a a well-rounded person Mm -hmm. or finding career opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. How can this impact me for the next four or five decades of my life? Right. Yeah. And we're here to help guide you through that. Um, So what makes some of your favorite projects your favorites? I think my favorite projects are either tied to the the way the subject matter was delivered um, in terms of either the way the author wrote or the, just the subject matter itself um, and and the unique approach that was taken in delivering that material um, in some cases the, the fun projects are uh, the more challenging like, here was this was something that I wasn't sure we could accomplish but it you know it worked out because we were willing to stretch and grow and try to find a way to make a solution Um, and the author was willing to stretch and reach and grow because they wanted that same solution Mm -hmm. and so it was a matter of you know working very closely together Uh, in some cases the the, the reason a project is fun is because of the author. Um, you know, some of the, like, I, I would I could probably poll the three of you. Um, you're, the driest subject ever is probably on your top three or four is going to be stats, right? That is what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. There you go. <laughs> That's up there. Math, there you go. Um, and, and easily two or three of, of my favorite publications revolved around statistics it 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 goes back to uh you know the author was 
it was so for one of the stats titles, the author was just a boatload of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, another one, it was super challenging, but that was that was a fun growth opportunity for me as an individual and for the company as a whole. Um, in other cases, our authors are just fun people. I mean, they, they really are fun. They're, they've got mm-hmm. fascinating lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nobody arrived where they are by accident. There was a lot of intentionality and a lot of, uh, a, lot of in, a lot of decisions that were made that, and, and commitments that were made and all of that. And so they, they've all led very interesting lives. And the more you, you, you interact with them, you, know, you, you just uncover this information and you end up finding out that somebody likes the same bands you like or somebody um, just got a new smoker and they're trying out new recipes and you know so you start swapping recipes or whatever it is you know they're they're taking a vacation somewhere and you've been there and so or you're taking a vacation and they've been there and you want to find out you know what to do so it's it, again, it goes back a little bit there to relationship, but it um, those are the projects that are fun. You don't have too many unfun projects. Um, you know those those folks kind of weed themselves out uh, early in the development process. They they stop returning calls. They stop submitting content. Um, so yeah, unfortunately. What do authors ask you? when you meet with them um what are they looking what are they confused about or looking for guidance um most frequently they're looking for uh we we touched on this just a little bit but it's they're looking for that affirmation that confirmation of is this going to be suitable for my students is this going to help am i is my writing style too colloquial Mm -hmm. um is it too academic is it understandable? Can you, would you be able, if this was your exam, if this was your quiz, would you be able to pass it? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I think that's the most frequent question I get. And in a lot of cases, it's, you know, the same author asking the same question with, with almost every chapter. Sure. They just want to know, mm-hmm. is, this, is this hitting the mark? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it going to move the needle with my students? And in a lot of cases, it's, well, it, it makes sense to me. I understand it. I can draw a straight line from, you know, the original outline and this chapter's course objectives and the, the overall learning outcomes as, as stated in your syllabus. I can see how this chapter applies to it. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, we won't know until your students are using it. Right. Um, and unfortunately, that's the wait and see mm-hmm you know, build it and they will come type of advice that, that, you know, you have to give an author. Um, what I, what you might hear me sometimes say to an author is I'm the, I'm the perpetual idiot. Um, I, I read a chapter, I learn something and then I promptly forget it. Uh, (laughs) it is so that it's a perfect fit. Um, so that I can then evaluate the next chapter without that, that bias or that yeah. preconception of oh I've already learned this I'm gonna I'm gonna skim right over it, uh, so um, just yeah. that that's the type of I think that's the most frequently asked question mm-hmm. outside of the how do I even get started. Sure. Yeah. 
And being in this role in this company for so long, you've seen many different trends in higher education come through and cycle through and come back again. And so I'm just wondering, what are some current trends you're seeing in higher education and how do how does GRL navigate those or help our authors navigate those? Yeah. So the, the I guess there are maybe two or three current trends um, that, that we're dealing with. One is uh, the use of open educational resources, mm-hmm. OER. Um, and... Um, you know, we first started encountering that, uh, I'm going to say, four or five years ago, and then it really exploded uh, through through COVID as instructors were looking for a way to supplement um, and complement their traditional textbook. They were just looking for more mm-hmm. um, because they knew their students weren't weren't reading, they weren't learning, and so they were trying to evaluate, you know, what is it that's creating this lack of interest in the book? Mm -hmm. So maybe it's the content itself, well, let's look at OER. Or maybe it wasn't digital, well, let's look at OER. Um, So whatever the case, or I just need more. I need a second because I'm not there. I can't hold office hours anymore. It's not easy to hold office hours online. I can't stay behind and answer five questions so I can direct my students toward this or the Khan Academy or LinkedIn Learning or whatever it is, right? Whatever it was, YouTube. Um, so that's that's one shift uh, is OER. And um, I don't know that, I think we're probably agnostic when it comes to OER. Um, it's, it's a great tool in some cases and in other cases it it's got its limitations, um, and that's true for every publication, whether it's free or, or not. Um, and so how we approach it is, well, what's, what's going to be best? Well, again, what is, our, what is our desired outcome? What are we trying to achieve? What are we trying to accomplish? Um, and does something from OpenStax make sense? Um, or one of the other OER groups out there? Does it make sense to try and incorporate it? And how would we do that? Um, what sort of uh, limitations exist? And how do we how do we approach it? Well, we just approach it on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one trend that's happening right now. The other trend that I'm starting to see, and it's a, I'm trying to decide if it's really a trend or if it's just two or three outliers that are coincidentally occurring simultaneously. Um, And that is a a real shift in the way the course is being, or way courses are being presented. Um, And there's a part of me that's wondering if it's driven by uh, accreditation or if it's driven by um, a desire to be competitive amongst other institutions. Um, But but these, uh, you know, outliers that I'm starting to observe and wonder if it's part of a larger trend. What what they're doing is they're redesigning the course. Um, you know, course redesigns would occur once every what eight to twelve years, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe maybe this is just the eighth or the twelfth year for these mm-hmm. you know three or four courses. Sure. Um, 
but it, it's the fact that they've all occurred recently. So a part of me is wondering, is this in response to uh, declining enrollment mm -hmm. and a desire to try and attract more students to that program? And we're going to make this program or this course and, and the overall program more efficient, more streamlined for the student. We want, to, instead of trying to be the, uh, the traditional, you know, well, what is now traditional, uh, you know, 14 to 15 credit hour uh, semester um, over four and a half, maybe five years. Now we're going to make sure that it is, no matter what, it's 14 or 15 credit hours, and you can complete this program of study beginning to end in, you know, three and a half to four semesters. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to be, so they're, they're competing both on uh, making sure that it's economically, mm -hmm. you know, the, the yeah. competitive, as well as once you get out, you are ready to hit the streets and work right. to pay off any kind of loans you've got, uh, any debt you've accumulated. Um, so course redesign is, is a shift. Um, there's a bit of a boomerang going on now where uh, we saw a lot of videos created, a lot of, a lot of content that uh, may have been, you know, you know, 50, 60 percent video delivered, and it's shifting back now to more text content, less video, because the, the courses themselves, the instructors, um, were responding to COVID. I can't be in person. I've got to have that personal contact. Part of what I'm delivering to my students is myself, my expertise. Um, and so they would record a lot of vignettes or longer videos that would, you know, we would host and embed within the publication. And we're seeing a bit of a pendulum shift backwards where the number and amount and length of those videos is shifting backwards because they're back in the classroom. Sure. And they want to avoid this concept of, oh, I'm a course in a box. Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, I'm like a Khan Academy, which is, you know, free or relatively yeah. free. Um, we want to avoid that, um, that perception. You know, we are at the University of Iowa or the Ohio State University or the University of Michigan, whatever. And our courses, our classrooms, our instructors are part of the experience. Right. And this is not something you just pull off a shelf. Um, it's, it's something more than that. And so you're starting to see some of the videos come out because they don't want to be uh, confused. Go yeah, you still got to go to class. <laughs> right, to get the full experience. To get the full experience, yeah. So... Did that answer your question? That was excellent. I, I, I hadn't seen the... <laughs> I hadn't been aware of that boomerang, but now that you've mm -hmm. brought it up, I have anecdotally noticed that in the publications that I work on, that there are fewer videos or fewer longer video form yeah. delivery, yeah. which um, I think everyone has their preferences mm -hmm. on, but I understand removing them at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think at some point we'll have a little bit of a shift backwards. Sure. Oh, it's a pendulum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it'll, that's really what it is. Yeah. There's so many trends in higher education oh, yeah. that seem like it's just that pendulum. It's oh, gone away, but it'll be 
back in a new form or take a different form. Before we get to our last question, I suppose, is there anything on your mind that you'd like Mm -hmm. to express to potential listeners? For, For current authors, hey, let us know how things are working. Just because we've we've developed this publication and students are using it doesn't mean we're done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure if it was said in your first meeting with uh, one of our uh, acquisitions folks or a second meeting or if it was in a meeting with one of the PDCs or myself, um, but that message is out there or should be out there that we're never really done. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're constantly evolving and shifting and changing because you know your students are shifting and changing and and the in some cases the course material is shifting and changing Mm -hmm. um you know imagine a political science title that was written four years Mm ago um Mm -hmm. you know what is it uh how many indictments and court cases are in in the rearview mirror from four years ago that that weren't in that edition so you've got you've got all sorts of uh, updates to make for former authors, I would say, you know, reach back out. Maybe, maybe things weren't quite right back then, but we can definitely uh, reevaluate where they're at now, uh, and and you know, see if we can't make it work. You know, maybe maybe our process has evolved and it's changed and it's shifted, uh, or maybe there was some functionality that wasn't present ten years ago that is now. Um, you know, again, maybe there was something in your life that was, you know, hindering you or, you know, that required more priority, more of your time then than there is now. Um, you know, perhaps you had a a four-year-old who was going through T-ball and guess what? 10 years have gone by and that, you know, four-year-old is now 14 and doesn't need to be driven to every practice, uh, because they've got a school permit and they can drive themselves. So for future authors, I would say just get started. I, I said that earlier. Take a chance. Get started. Um, you, you'll, never, you'll never know unless you try. Well, our last question that we have for you, Tim Shade, is an inversion of the question we usually ask our authors. So okay. you usually end it on the note of you're wrong, which is their chance to rant about some kind of misconception going on in their discipline. We actually want to have you do a you're right. So what are you seeing right in terms of trends in higher education and tech today? You're right. Trends in tech and higher education. Uh, Well, I think, so I touched on this briefly earlier, and that is, I I think it's a good opportunity. I think I'm seeing maybe it's a trend, maybe not, uh, where instructors and departments are asking, do we need to redesign this course? Do we need to do something different to better serve our students? So I think that's one thing that's a, a big step in the right direction. You know, you mm-hmm. cannot continue teaching biology or math or whatever the same way you've taught it for 40 years. So redesigning it, I think, is, is a good step. Um, I think another good step in education is, and it's not moving as quickly as I would like to see it, um, is this commitment to uh, a four-year undergraduate 
program. You know, uh, can you can you go from first year freshman, first day freshman, to graduating and contributing to society in four years, um, building your future in four years? And for a lot of folks, uh, you know, myself included, that wasn't the case. And it would have been nice, you know, had it had it occurred that way. Um, I think another trend that I'm seeing is an emphasis on bringing in more relevant and real world, here's how you use this as a professional. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in biology, even in like a first year, you know, biology 101, you know, textbook, um, and our publications are starting to see more and more, here's how you use this in real life. Mm -hmm. In animal science, here's what the day in the life of a, a, a pork producer looks like. Mm-hmm. Here's what a day in the life of somebody who's in education. Here's what their life looks like. Here's a real-world experience so that you can develop the confidence in yourself that you can handle this type of situation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a little bit of uh, firsthand experience, whether it's experiential learning or uh you know, firsthand person in the hot seat. Here's what my life looks like after, you know, taking this uh, finance course or this economics course. Um, here's how I'm using this skill or this knowledge on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a that's a you're right. It's good to move in that direction and make it uh, more applicable to to the uh, to the student. Yeah, and that's definitely throughout season one of the podcast, I think almost all of our authors really honed on the fact that you can make a career out of all of their disciplines and they're going to tell the students the options, right. especially the Copsil, Copsil title, horticulture. Every chapter had multiple instances of here's an interview with someone that got your degree and here's how they've used it to build a career and a life for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good title to, to point at and, you know, great uh, execution on that that well thank you we have had a wonderful time as always speaking to you Tim you've really shown a light on the development process what it's like working with GRL and how we are here to guide you along this journey yeah Um, I think we answered a lot of questions that people might be wondering about working with us and what it's like and what we do and why we do it the why is important. The why, the why is the start. That's right. So. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Can I Get a Retake is hosted by Michelle Manaman and Michaela Albee. The show is edited by Maggie Christensen. Artwork for the podcast was designed by Michelle Manaman. Our intro and outro music was created by Coma Media. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, Please subscribe, share, rate, and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. To join the conversation, you can find us on Instagram at Can I Get a Retake. For show notes and episode transcripts, visit GreatRiverLearning.com/podcast.